What is your heart break for? My heart breaks right now for the amount of pain we learn to tolerate. The amount of pain that we, from the moment we're born into the world, uh, are taught is unacceptable amount of pain, is a negligible amount of pain, um, something that even acknowledging makes us weaker for. And, you know, it's funny, before before I came here, um, and I was running a little bit late because I was finishing an application for uh, this shelter that works with domestic violence victims and survivors in the Asian American community. And I haven't filled out that many applications for jobs, but this was by far the hardest thing I've had to fill out that was job-related. And it wasn't because I didn't know anything. It, it wasn't because I had to research things. I, I know a lot about this. You know, I've been... I, I am a survivor. You know, I grew up in a family environment that was hostile and violent and toxic in a lot of ways. Um, so I could speak from personal experience. I think the thing that really challenged me in that process was I think figuring out how much of my pain they wanted to see um, because they had this question um, have you had any experience with domestic violence and then in brackets optional <laughs> right and that put me in a bit of a pickle where I was thinking well yes I mean this is something that does motivate me to do this work and something that really makes my heart burst with anger and excitement and just a lot of passion. Um, but I felt like I had to justify with yes, but, yes, and, you know, that I grew up around adults who caused me a lot of pain, but, you know, I've done all of these positive things with it that have channeled in something that is useful for other people. And maybe that is something that everyone has to go through when they think about their own pain and how they channel their pain. And at the same time, I felt something in me breaking a little bit. Yeah. This week, I met this artist and she's talking about the importance of knowing your community. Mm -hmm. And I had a question for her. I asked her, you know, yeah, I understand that you really need to know a community when you want to work with them, but at some point, are you, what if you're too close to the issue? What if you're still living it? What if, like, I'm scared sometimes that the work that I do, I live it too viscerally. <clears throat> do you think that a part of you is looking for healing through the work that you do? That is a question I, I still struggle with a lot. And I think even today I wonder, you know, or I worry, and maybe, maybe worry is the more accurate word, but I worry about what happens if I end up putting my time and my energy into this and then I, I do it and I find out, you know, that somehow because of my proximity to the issue, I'm not able to serve people in the way that I intended or that I wanted, right? Yeah. Um, and I think it's especially hard to think about that question when we think about anti-violence work, right? Because violence does leave a mark on people. Yeah. And 
violence is something that is insidious and it always finds a way to sneak into even the solutions we propose. Um, you know, I've been thinking a lot about um, how there's so much discussion right now about sustainable activism and activist communities because, you know, on one hand, these are things that stand against these ways of thinking and I think these um, institutions that um, that have caused people harm and that's why we stand against them. But on the other hand, there are ways of thinking about work, ways of thinking about labor and ways of thinking about self-care or, or care, maybe maybe care more broadly, even the word self-care um, plays into that a little bit. But how do we do this work in a way that doesn't replicate the same structures of power and violence that we're trying to undo or address? Um, so when I think about domestic violence advocacy, I think I have to think about it more broadly. I think for me, the hardest thing to deal with, I think has been this desire for vengeance, you know? Um, when I see adults or parents or caretakers who get away with impunity and brazen impunity, you know, people who are not only unaware of what they have done to pe their, the people in their care, but, you know, unrepentant, um, you know, part of me gets very angry and you know, on one hand, that's a very useful moral impulse. You know, it, it guides me a lot. You know, I, I follow that voice a lot. On the other hand, when I'm thinking about what do I want to demand from people? What do I want to ask? Like, what is my ask? What am I asking of people? I need to make sure I'm not thinking of it through the same framework of harm that, you know, I've been socialized into believing. Yeah. So that's a, that's a hard question. Um, but healing can look like a lot of different things too, right? I think healing can be an unexpected connection. Healing can be a moment of realizing that your capabilities are beyond what you expected or imagined. Um, yeah. yeah, healing can also just be creation. Um, so I think in doing advocacy, I don't want to be just an advocate. I also want to be an artist. I want to be a teacher. I want to be, you know, a spiritual guide. Um, yeah. How have you found your healing? Hmm. The first thing you have to do when you address something that is painful for you is to name it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think I I don't think that as a kid I would have named what was happening in my house um abuse. Yeah. Yeah. I would have named it probably uh, you know, caring too much or temper problems or I would have I mean the point is I wouldn't have thought of it as being a beast right yeah. um and then I you know you're thrown into an environment where suddenly you're away from home you're away from family and you have to make that for yourself right that's something that college really challenges you to do um and makes you better at I think is like connecting with people and for me, I realized I just didn't know how to do that. Yeah. Uh, and I had to think back to why. And I realized, you know, so many of the ways in which I was socialized to, I think, like, connect with people was to avoid violence. You know, I was always meeting people with the presumption that they would hit me if they got angry or that if I said the wrong thing that they would snap back at me. Um, 
that, and that's the environment you grow up in. I think you you get you get very good at pleasing people. You get very good at reading people's emotions and catering to their needs, and not always yours, right? Yeah. Um, so in a way, healing has um, been just identifying, like, hey, you know, this is this kind of way of thinking is the product of a category of behaviors um, that most people recognize as abusive, and it's not enough to recognize it, it has affected me yeah. here. And I need to be transparent and open about that in every relationship I have. And I was. Um, and the thing I found is that people are so much more receptive to it than you would expect. You know, they've had, they've been through themselves maybe, or even if they haven't been, they, they, they know someone who has been because violence is, violence and shame um, have this really sneaky relationship where I think they convince you that you are to blame for what's happening in your home, that this is a private issue, that it belongs to you and no one else, right? Um, and thing is, violence belongs to everybody. Yeah, everyone has been affected by it. And so I think step, the second step from there was thinking, you know, not just, you know, how I've been affected, you know, I think it's very easy to, I think, get, I think, like, stuck in that. And for a long time, I was, I think, stuck in this mindset of, like, you know, oh, you know, I've suffered, you know, I've, I've been through so much, you know, and I deserve restitution. And then I realized, you know, what about everyone else? <laughs> yeah. Um, and that was why I began writing spoken word poetry, um, yeah. or began writing more of it. Um, that was why I became interested in doing domestic violence advocacy, doing yeah. legal work. Um, that was partially why I think I began um, getting more involved in, I think, um, intentional community building. Yeah. Um, I'm on the residential committee at my um, at my college, and that has been, for me, honestly, a transformed experience because I've seen how many different things people in this community struggle with. Yeah. And so I think it wasn't enough to, I think, just say, hi, I've been hurt. You know, I need to heal. I need to connect my healing process to, I think, the healing of the community around me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so I think that's what it's looked like so far. Um, I think there are still things I'm working on. You know, I'm learning about myself and other people. Um, in particular, I'm learning so much about emotions. I'm learning, <laughs> you know, how do, you know, I think the big thing I learned in my first years of college was, you know, how do I identify emotions? How do I name them, right? Uh -huh. And then the thing I'm learning now, I think having learned that is how do I name them and then just let them be? Huh. Because I think for, um, you know, I think it's very uh, easy um, to get in this, I think, trap of, I think, you know, letting your emotions, like, dictate you. I think, like, let your emotions define you and your behavior. Yeah. Um, and of course I think like it's important to recognize, I think like how our emotions, I think affect us. It's also very important to recognize that like emotions are transient things yeah. that they come and go, um, and you will still be here. Yeah. So that's, I think, a lesson I'm thinking about right now. There's this neuroscientist and she has this girl about 90 seconds and she says it takes... 90 seconds for an immediate emotion to enter through your bloodstream and then exit. Any moment you spend longer with that emotion, it's you're pressing the reset button on it. And so she encourages people to, when you have immediate emotions and reactions, just sit with it and recognize that it's there and let them be.
you talked about your spoken word and is that the primary art that you create? Wow. Um, right now I feel like I'm in a really transitional period with my art. Mm-hmm. Um, and my art, by the way, primarily is um, writing and performing and reading. Um, I guess it's just the thing I have the most experience with and I'd love to, I think, explore other things. Um, but right now I'm, I'm a little stuck, honestly. Yeah. Um, I think... So my roommate and I, um, this is really funny, um, we were talking on our way back from um, dinner one night and we realized um, without knowing, both of us had been um, debate alumni in high school. We had had done debate. And it's funny because I think when you think of debaters and I don't know what image that conjures for anyone listening, but for me, like I am the furthest thing from a debater. My roommate is also the furthest thing from a debater. Um, And we were talking about how funny it was that we hadn't known this about each other. And then we talked about what we had gained out of it. And, mm-hmm. you know, um, they're black. They're also, they identify as um, genderqueer. And so one thing that they said, one thing they said that stuck with me a lot was debate taught me how to be, how to be arrogant and to rebel in it, you know, mm-hmm. um, I'm, I'm paraphrasing a little bit. It may be, I mean, but the sentiment was just that, you know, when you're in a debate and you're starting to be, by people who are trying to win the argument, you know, you dig your heels in deeper, you become, you begin to figure out how to perform stubbornness, you know, how to feel conviction in your own assertions and your own um, arguments. Um, and to just believe that you're right, you know? Yeah. Like, it's so interesting to me thinking <laughs> about, you know, like, you know, like when you grow up, like which kids are, I think, like taught constantly that I think like that they're right you know that their intuitions that their perceptions are right and which ones are dismissed yeah I think the way in which like you bring people up I I think we talk about I think like how different people grow up like that's a huge difference I see yeah and it plays out across lines of I think gender and class and race all the time yeah yeah um and I thought about that and I was like you know I really hated debate I hated I hated everything about it I hated um the weird hierarchical structure that I hated, I think a lot of the um, petty bullying that like upperclassmen who were your coaches um, would partake in, and not all of them, but you know, a lot of them. Uh, I hated, I think just, I hated feeling like I had to be aggressive and I had to yell and I had to, you know, I had to be what I wasn't, which is, (laughs) I'm just a very deferential person in general and I don't like conflict and I don't like fighting. So stepping into that hat of debater was a really hard thing for me. On the other hand, it also gave me tools. Yeah. So I think that's how I think about things now, that I experiences that I don't like. I think of them as having given me tools to work with, you know, and I can make something better with that in the future. And spoken word um, is this thing where I think, like, I've fallen, I fell in love with it um, my freshman year, you know. I think seeing people who I saw as being very vulnerable, but also very strong in their vulnerability. Like, that was a powerful thing to me. I think I yeah. needed that at that age. And I think, like, now that I'm entering this different um, moment in my life, you know, it really doesn't do as much. I feel like I'm writing in one voice and one feeling, and I don't want to do that. Um, so right now I'm a little bit stuck. Um, but I think that's not to say that spoken word didn't give me a lot of really powerful ways of expressing myself. And yeah. I'm so grateful for what it was.
or what it's been the last two and a half years. Uh, every time you share your spoken word pieces with me and sometimes you have you let me read it and every time it's just been I don't I don't I've, I've never met anyone that moves me in the way that you do and I think like I articulate this often to you because like I just need you to know and I need to say it that like sometimes I see you and I'm just like a reminder that the world is good because you exist in in the whole sense that you are I think you must know that you are an amazing person and the way that you care about people the way that you express love and it's I wanted to ask you know how I feel like I mean you're you're widely loved and I hope you know this um but do you think you have to learn how to receive love Wow, I'm I'm just I'm sorry I'm I'm taking a moment right now. This is, I mean that that means a lot um, to hear um, from someone I, I respect so much, <laughs> and I'm so grateful for it. And so, first of all, just I mean thank you. Yeah. Uh, no, I would say that you know it's it's this. Um, I think it's definitely uh, a process. It's been a process for me. Um, and I think that like one thing I'm getting better at is, you know, like learning, I think like <coughs> what things I love about myself. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and those things, you know, exist um, outside of, I think like what I can do for other people. Yeah. Um, that was such a large part of, I think, how I thought about things in high school, uh, you know, of, being the really chipper one, the one who dealt with problems really well, um, the one who didn't get down too easily. Uh, and all of those things, you know, are still things I value, but they couldn't only be things I valued in relation to making other people feel better. You know, um, at some point I had to begin taking, you know, better stock of my own feelings and my own needs. Uh, what do you love about yourself? I, I like that. Love? Yeah, I, I like that um, I feel fear. Um, I actually think that, like, the fear is something that, like, you know, it, it drives me a little bit. Um, that I think, you know, courage doesn't exist without fear, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so people have definitely um, told me that they respect, I think, um, how open I am about, like, my struggles and... Um, I think the the things that I have to, a harder time with, um, and I think you know, well, first of all, like I'm very grateful for that. Um, on the other hand, you know, I still feel that twinge of like, you know, is this too much? And I think that like, it's this thing yeah. that I think keeps me in check. You know, yeah, it it keeps me. I think like um, from forgetting. I think like the power my words have. That words are really powerful things, and yeah. so I need to use them responsibly and carefully. So I think like fear, courage, responsibility, those things exist I think in sort of I think like a very symbiotic relationship for me um I like that um 
I like that I value listening. Um, I think that comes out of not having been a very eloquent speaker um, when I was young. I got asked a lot in class to speak up or speak slower, uh, especially speak slower. Mm -hmm. uh, and knowing that frustration of, I think, like, feeling like you're not being heard and you're speaking with the voice you've been given, right? Like, you have your voice. Um, it's been given to you. Uh, I think has made me more mindful of um, listening to other people more deeply and more thoughtfully. Um, and just a question I'm going to add here, but I think like, you know, we have so many resources and so many um, pieces of advice, I think, for people who want to be better speakers, right? Mm -hmm. And my question is, you know, why we don't give that same value to people who want to be better listeners? Mm -hmm. Why do we have public speaking classes in high schools and in public education systems and we don't have a single class on how to be a better listener? Oh. Yeah. So that's... That's just a weird, I think, like imbalance or thing how we value communication that it just never made sense to me. Um, I can't relate, but um, and I think that I like that. I think that I like um, that I'm okay with. I think things being quiet. Uh, I think I no longer feel obligated. I think like fill space. I think it's like jokes or I think like words um, huh. that I feel very comfortable. I think like letting people be. Um, yeah, and that I feel more comfortable just being. Um, so um, these are things that I value about myself a lot, and I think I value them because I know that I had to work at them, yeah. and I still have to work at them. What happens when you feel like you're having a conversation with someone and you're not being heard? Mm. Now I just walk away. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm just like, it's like, okay, cool, like, you know, you're doing your homework, okay, bye. Um, and I, just, <laughs> I, just, I just leave, you know, it's like, um, yeah. that, you know, I'm, I'm still going to be here, you know, I'm still going to be an open book, and you're not going to stop me from doing that. Like, I, I have, I, I've gained too much from it, I think, and I've, like, I've been so grateful to um, have come into this way of thinking about, I think, like, openness, that, like, I'm not going to let that go because, like, one person's, like, I don't know, like, not interested. Um, yeah. But maybe I, you know, maybe I go to someone else I trust more. Um, yeah. I go to someone I know better. Um, or I go to someone who just feels more open. You know, I've had some of the best interactions of my life with people I've met for, like, the second or third time. Yeah. Because it was just this thing where the stars aligned, it was a quiet weekend night, and the D-Hall was empty, and there was enough space for both of us to get to know each other. Yeah. yeah, and those moments are, like, I honestly, I, I live for those moments. Those moments are so important to me, and I think, like, having one of them can just fuel me for, I think, like, a good, like, three, four weeks. <laughs> yeah, just, like, you know, right. I got to know this person. Like, I can't believe it. I'm always surprised by the people that enter your lives when you least expect it. Like, we were meant to be friends. We were yeah. meant to be here. I remember you saying I have a really great imagination and with that I've been able to create worlds for myself. Could I ask you about those worlds? Yeah, you know, I I think I feel this most um, when I'm just in bed uh -huh. um, or I'm just people watching, you know, I'm like in a way distance from people, but I am just, um, but I'm watching people and how they run. 
and reading into, I guess, like all the little things you're doing. Yeah. Um, I've been thinking a lot about just the idea of, I think, like, you know, chosen families um, or new families, you know, people choosing to stay in a place where they don't have to, you know, there's no obligation for them to. Uh, and I think about that a lot. Um, through, I think, like, the genre of, like, I guess, like, kids' shows and science fiction, those two things help me a lot. I mean, kids' shows are just wonderful, honestly. I yeah. watch more kids' shows than I do as an actual kid. You know? <laughs> um, and then science fiction, just because, um, I think what science fiction gets at so well is, I think, the idea of possibility. Yeah. That, you know, you have new technologies that are emerging, you have new ways of living that are emerging and if you extrapolate from those points into the future like what do you see you know so it's this thing that can be I think, like very like dystopic but it can also be very utopic mm-hmm. um yeah and i have this like one stuffed animal in particular you know this really funny mix between i think a caterpillar and a pig uh cat or pig um is what i call him but you know but you know, I feel like was him. I just have this entire like um, story in my head about you know how he he comes from a planet where everyone is parts different. It's part it's like two parts um, of different animals. You know, <laughs> like maybe you have like thing like the moose cow, <laughs> or you have like the cat bug. Um, the cat bug is actually a character in the cartoon. Oh. by the way, yeah. I'm just thinking that that that's a real thing that exists, but. But, you know, it's just a different way of thinking about, I think, identity, right? Like, identity is being hybridized, and I think being the composite of many different parts. Um, for me, you know, a Korean-American immigrant, that is very powerful to imagine that you live in a world where everyone is, in some sense, from more than one place. Um, that there's no, I think, like, root of origin, no, 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 no origin, right? Um, and then I just imagine, you know, Someone, this, this caterpillar guy, you know, he's got to have parents, right? And they probably miss him a lot, but they sent him to Earth because they wanted him to study our ways <laughs> of living and our ways of doing things and our ways of understanding ourselves. Um, so he's kind of, I think it's kind of like a, a spy, like an undercover. <laughs> I mean, he's also adorable. He's the most adorable spy that ever lived, but um, he ends up um in a human family and he ends up loving it so much that he just stays yeah like yeah and that's like i mean i have you know like this story does not really exist um uttered in my head but um it helps me work through a lot of things i think yeah um and it doesn't you know it's like this thing where i feel like you know i think about this a lot and i don't share it with a lot of people but you know i think about it and it gives me a lot of um, strength and then i you know i look at people watching, which I also really like doing. And I, I think part of what I like so much is I think that, like, it shows me how many different possibilities there are for human relationships. Yeah. You know, we... I think there's so much anxiety around, I think, like, you know, like, are you dating someone? Like, you know, like, what do you do if, like, you have, like, friends of the same gender and, like, you have, like, a romantic partner? It's like, why do those things have to be so, I think, like, rigidly compartmentalized, right? Yeah. Like, there are so many different kinds of intimacy and they're also rewarding and I don't understand why people want to limit themselves in these ways. Yeah. yeah. I've, I mean, 
I've had the pleasure of meeting Mr. Caterpig mm-hmm. a few times. Mm-hmm. Mr. Caterpig is someone that existed in your own world, but you brought him out. And I remember the first, when we wrote the spoken word play together, yeah. you know, the, the new actors were coming in yeah. and they were so nervous and you decided to bring Mr. Caterpig and introduce him to everyone yeah. and everyone shook his hand. And I think you just picked up on the fact that we all needed some comfort that day. And it was, you know, and you always made it a point every time I visited you to bring Mr. Caterpig out. And oh. Man, it's so funny. You know, I think like, like when I thought about bringing him that day, I didn't even think about it. I just, it was like, just the thing I did um so to I think here you know two years later that I think like that meant a lot to you and to the other people and that day like that that means a lot to hear um can I share one more story please um which is and this is I think was like the ethnicity thing um so you know hi everyone I'm genderqueer I'm also uh you know um a person of color and these are very different ways of thinking about myself than I think my parents would ever understand, which is why I'm closeted at home. Um, that is partially because of just um, the communication barrier and partially because just, you know, I, I still live with them when I'm at home. Um, and I and I do feel like I'm scared of what their response would be if they ever did, um, you know, find out. Uh, so I'm, that's I struggle with that here. But I do want to share one thing. Um, is that the person who gave Caterpig um, his name is my mom. Uh, my mom looked at him, and um, she looked at him, and she looked at the colors um, of his body because he had a green. Stri- he has a green stripe and then a pink stripe and then a, um, a magenta stripe. Um, his face is like all pink though. But um, basically, um, the Korean word for Tichi is um, Tichi. I mean, uh, oh wait, okay. <laughs> No, uh, the Korean word for um, pig is teji. Um And then the uh, Korean word for caterpillar is ebole, right? So she called him tebole. <laughs> and it was just a funny joke, right? Like, it's just a, um, a pun, you know, it's, a, it's it's pun humor. Everyone gets pun humor, right? Yeah. But we, I don't know, I was thinking about this just now, and I'm just realizing, you know, people, humans like combining things. Humans like putting things together that don't make sense because those things appeal to us in some level, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm thinking, you know, why can't we think about gender in that way? Like, uh-huh. Why can't we think about, you know, race or sexuality or so many different parts of identity um, in that way? Yeah. Yeah. When even my mom, who is, I think, like, one of the most conservative people I know and who would probably flip her shit if you ever found out that, is, if she ever heard this. Hi, Mom. Um, <laughs> um, if she ever heard about this. Uh, you know, if, if even she can have something like this come to her in that moment, you know, yeah. like... What's to say that all of us can't begin thinking in these terms, too? Yeah. Yeah. Caterpig is deep. Caterpig is always a window to a new way of being, I think. I always thought, for me as a Korean-American woman, that my hyphen Mm -hmm. is sometimes a border Mm -hmm. and sometimes a bridge. Hmm. Oh I, I love that way of thinking about it. Yeah, you know, a border and a bridge. That is, 
that I hadn't ever thought about my own, you know, heritage in that way, but that makes sense, yeah. I think. Um, I mean, I've also heard, I think, people who remove the hyphen because they say they feel entirely Korean and entirely American. Uh -huh. And to me, that is very, you know, it's, it's a very optimistic and very understandable sentiment. Um, but it's not really how I felt, you know, I think I've always felt, um, I felt that being American, this is, being American is complicated. Yeah. Um, being Korean is equally complicated, <laughs> you know, like you think about colonial histories and you think about, I think, like, the militarization of the Korean state and yeah. what that did to men like my dad and my granddad, uh, my granddad who lost a bullet, um, who got hit by a bullet in the war, and then my dad who had to deal with, I think, his traumatized, um, violent father. Yeah. before becoming my traumatized violent father. So it's just this, like, thing of, like, you know, like, identity is painful, too. Identity is painful. Identity yeah. is very painful. Uh, and the idea of bridging these two things through the hyphen is something that resonates a lot with me. Yeah. yeah. Bridging two worlds, speaking to how they affect the other, how they shape the other, um, in ways that are mutually enforcing and not always good. Yeah. Yeah. And then being able to imagine the kind of Korean American identity we can make, you know. Yeah. That we that that's in our hands now. Yeah. You know. Our kids' futures are gonna depend on I think like the battles we fight and For sure. Yeah. Earlier, you were talking about vengeance. Yeah. Could you speak more about that? There is this um, weird fantasy that plays out in my head sometimes. I think even now, and you know, I think I've come much more. I've, been more at peace I think than I've been in a long time um, but but there's still this fantasy I think of my parents you know if they ever find out that I'm gay you know hurting me you know hurting me enough that that there'll be evidence and I think that's the hard thing for me still like there's no evidence of something that happened like years ago yeah. you know like there's nothing on my body too I think marked that mark me as a survivor right and, but the scars are psychological and they stay with me. So in a way, I think, like, um, I still struggle with things like weirdly, like, perverse desire, I think, to, I think, like, have something to, I think, like, mark, to have something that would mark me, you know? Uh. Something that would, I think, be admissible in a court of law <laughs> that would get them far, far away from me. Um, and failing that, I have um, another, you know, recurring dream about, I think, like, me just, like, think yelling at it hurts, I think my parents being terrified of me in the same way that I as a kid was terrified of them. Uh, and, you know, there's the part of me that tugs at me and says, you know, be, you know, imagine how cathartic it would be to hold that power yeah. um, over the people who had power over you for once, right? Like, and then there's the other part of me, I think the part of me that I think is drawing me away from that kind of thinking that pulls at me and says, but that power is bullshit. That power is that power is so fucked up, you know? Like, why is it power to, I think, like, hold 
have people like fear you, you know, like shouldn't I think like power be built on respect or I think trust or something that isn't that is more sustainable than I think the fear of consequences. Yeah. And I'm thinking, you know, like how do I be graceful in being a survivor? How do I be graceful to my abusers? Oh, um God. and maybe abuser is the wrong word, you know, because I also think about what terminology we use around people who engage in things that are horrible practices, right? Like, and maybe this goes back to, um, I think seeing people as to some of, I think what they are not, I think the worst thing they've ever done. Yeah. That my parents are a lot more than the worst thing they've ever done. My dad, if you want to say my dad's also a survivor, he is, he survived a war. He survived a dictatorship. He survived my granddad. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I, I still see them as parents. Um, Parents were capable of doing terrible things because, like many people, they were complicated. Um, they were hurt, uh, and I think that I struggle with, you know, being graceful towards them while still holding them accountable for what they have done. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a question that many survivors like me will have to think about and have to grapple with. It's a really big ethic question, and if you ever have an answer, like, please let me know. <laughs> because I've been working at it for 21 years. It hasn't really gotten any clearer to me, but, yeah. I have one last question. Yeah. What does going towards heartbreak look like? Processing that question. Of course. To mind a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I think going towards heartbreak means that no matter whether people stand with me, whether my own parents will stand with me that I know the truth of what I've experienced. I know the direction that has guided me in, and I know that I trust that voice. I trust it with everything I have. And going towards heartbreak means that I will go towards what I feel is just and right. And whatever the consequences of that may be, I know now that I am stronger than I ever imagined I would be. Thank you. Thank you. I love you. I love you too. <laughs> Ode to Mr. Caterpig. Like many love stories, he begins as an inside joke. A little novelty I find in the bedding section of a big box store in Korea. A pig with three colored stripes. The Korean word for pig is tweji, which for some reason fits right into the Korean word for caterpillar. Ebole. My mom takes one look and calls him Tuebole. And in English, his name becomes Mr. Caterpig. Half literal translation, half good luck. The first day I take him anywhere, he's just a toy. My classmates play monkey in the middle, smushing him between their crotches as 
high school boys do. But he gets dirty and I realize for the first time I need to wash him. I'm soaking him in the bathtub and scrubbing him with soap when I peek at my hands, wrinkled under the water, and I see the same tenderness and love in them I saw in my grandmother's as a kid. When my mom walks in, she asks me how seriously I'm taking this, and I tell her, as honestly as I can, that I don't know. The more and more details I imagine into his body, the more fun it gets. His stubby little arms point at even the dimmest lights, like they're stars, like he's always reaching out to everything that crosses his path. When I lay him on his back, he's happy just to wiggle his legs, even if they won't get him far. And that smile's always on his face. Those eyes always twinkle. The first night I bring him home, it's a January night. These are cold days even for winter and you've already taught yourself so many different ways to stay warm. The nights your parents are screaming at each other are the nights you push your earphones in a, a little deeper, turn the volume a little higher. I've been told I have a habit of hugging people like I'm holding on for life, but when I clutch him to my chest, for once, I'm not scared somebody will let go. He's the one I take on your first college interview. The one I bring to New York on my first Thanksgiving trip. The day I fly out for college, Dad pulls him out of the bag I snuck him into, tells me that I don't need another reason for my classmates to make fun of me. I already know. To everybody else, he's just a joke. A toy. But somewhere along the line, he became more. He became a plushy anchor in a sea of change, a pocket of warmth on a frosty New England morning. He became a little brother I never learned to nurture because I never had one because the way I remembered it, all the anger in my family trickled down, dad to mom to sister to me. He became the question all my friends asked and then the story we began to make up together. He became a Facebook account. Even Mr. Catterpig has scars on his body now. I can recount them. The tag I foolishly ripped out of his stomach, the dog who mauled him by accident, the surgery I had to improvise on a dusty dorm room floor. But his smile's still there and his eyes still sparkle. I used to believe growing older meant growing harder, shedding everything soft and pliable within myself. Now I know that sometimes inside jokes become gravely serious things. Sometimes there's nothing like play to bring people together. Sometimes love stories begin in ways you'd never expect. Oma sonni ak sonni da zuk zuk nara Oma sonni ak sonni da zuk zuk nara